a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, hello there, and welcome to the show. This is where wrong thinkers gather to get a little information on uh, understanding the world as it is, as well as uh, what we can do to move things in a positive direction. By the way, in pursuit of that goal, you're going to notice I spend a lot less time talking about uh, political things. You know, this this past weekend, the CPAC meeting took place in in uh, Washington D.C. and uh, of course, this is kind of the this is the uh, conservative, the Republican, you know, political action committee. And uh, oh my goodness, what uh, I look, I didn't watch any of the footage of it. I, I did watch a little clip of uh, Governor Christy Noem from uh, South Dakota. Um, she had some very good things to say, but it's because she was arguing principles, or at least expounding on principles, as opposed to just mouthing political platitudes. But, uh, ooh, you want an illustration of where things are so bent in our society today? You'll find it, not only in you know some of the political posturing that took place there on that CPAC stage, but also in the incredible distortions that uh, that were being put out there by uh, much of the uh, the heritage media. And I think one of the one of the dominant narratives over the weekend is, well, do you realize that the stage was actually shaped like a Nazi symbol? They're not even trying to hide their white supremacy. And and, and so this got me thinking about this whole critical race theory. Everything's racist. It's systemic racism everywhere we look. And I know there are people who see the world this way. I'm actually related to people who see the world this way. And it's it's difficult. I mean, how can you have a conversation with people? And I'm talking about just anything, not just about politics. How can you have a conversation with people who in their hearts believe that a seething racist, a bigot, a hater of humanity lurks in your heart? It's a pretty difficult thing. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who's encountered it to where... You know, what? what is there that you can even safely talk about? Because it's not about, to, hey, let's get together, let's visit. It's more like uh, a big struggle session for America. I'm going to sit here and be berated and and uh, called names and accused of heinous things, you know, and, and if, I, if I don't uh, acquiesce and nod and, you know, avert my gaze and look at the floor at the right time, well, you know, that's just more proof of what a, what a racist I must be. Doesn't that sound unhealthy? I mean, I, I can't imagine going out and, and pressuring people, uh, you know, berating them because you're not a part of my crusade and expecting that is how I'm going to be changing hearts and that's how I'm going to be changing minds. And like I say, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's been on the receiving end of this and, and it, it leaves you wondering, what do you do? What do you do? And I think one of the most disturbing aspects that we're seeing right now is this is creeping into the classroom. And I'll give you a quick example of this. Um, Megyn Kelly. Yes, Megyn Kelly, formerly of Fox News. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I don't know where she is now. I think she is. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that she is now on uh, NBC. I honestly don't know. See, this is how much media I'm, I'm not consuming these days. She was a guest on Bill Maher's show. Now, if you watched Bill Maher, 
you'll know uh, Bill Maher leans pretty hard to the left. And that's where he has, has really built his audience. His audience is pretty left-wing. He's a funny guy. I mean, he's he can be pretty scathing. But when he had Megyn Kelly on his show back on uh, Friday, she was complaining about the way her children's uh, private schools, pricey private schools, were indoctrinating her kids with pro-transgender values and anti-white animus. This is from an article in The American Thinker by Andrea Wilberg. I'm sorry, Widberg. My apologies, Andrea. And, you know, Marr, to his credit, she says, agreed with Kelly. Matters are getting seriously out of hand, at least when it comes to the anti-white hatred that is becoming the norm in education. Now, I'm going to just step back here for a minute. I have to probably offer this in interest of full disclosure. My wife is a public school teacher. Now, she's a math teacher, so it's not like uh, she is, you know, being required. You've got to teach the kids to hate themselves if they're white and to recognize all the horrible things that that white people have done in America was founded on slavery, according to the 1619 Project. She's lucky. She actually has a lot of common sense within the school district in which she works. And administrators really don't, uh, they don't put up with that nonsense. Teachers who who start, uh, you know, <clears throat> proselytizing kids would, would be in deep trouble. That's not their job. But it is happening in a lot of other places. And uh, for Kelly, she says for conservatives... It was kind of a surprise that her kids' private elementary school, and these are pricey schools, right? This is in New York, that they're teaching her children this kind of stuff. Kelly said that she and her husband identify as center-right. She's okay with the fact that schools are on the left side of the political aisle. But she says that changed when they went hard left and when they started to take a really hard turn toward the social justice stuff. In fact, one of the hot-button issues was the school's efforts to normalize transgenderism a form of body dysphoria that's recognized as a mental illness when the subject is anorexia, but not sex. Kelly told Marr that when one of her sons was in third grade, so eight years old, the school unleashed a three-week experimental trans education program. Not only did the kids find it terribly confusing, but Kelly also said that what was going on was more like coercion than teaching tolerance. So she said it wasn't about support. We felt like it was more like they were trying to convince them, like, come on over. And that same pressure was applied to her other son, who in kindergarten, rather, was made to participate in a class project that saw children writing to the Cleveland Indians to complain about their mascot. He's six, she said. Can he learn to spell Cleveland before we activate him? That's when she dropped a line that should be at the forefront of every single parent's brain as he or she fights the school's efforts to co-opt American children. Kelly said, if he's going to be activated, she says, Doug, that's her husband, and I should do it. It's up to the parents, not the schools, to set values for the children. But, of course, that's not how the leftists see it. Now, you would, might expect that uh, Bill Maher would push back. I mean, given he's, he's pretty leftist in his worldview. But he chimed in that he, too, had been hearing from parents leftist parents about the relentless anti-white activism that New York schools, both public and private, are pushing. Here's what he had to say. He says, this is what I've heard from parents, and these are all liberal, by the way, who say, my kids are not ready to be told they're white supremacists. You know, I'm not ready to be told. He says, you talked about this letter the school put out. He goes, can I read some of the things that are from this letter, lest people think that I'm losing my mind? Quote, there's a killer cop sitting in every school where white children learn. White children are left unchecked and unbothered in their homes. One sentence starts. Well, how old do you have to be before you can just be unchecked and unbothered? You know, 
what age do you, to, to, do, you, do you get bothered? It says, I'm tired of white people reveling in their state-sanctioned depravities, snuffing out black lives with no consequences. You know, go reform white kids. And he says, you know, it bothers me so much that I have to be on this side, Kelly's side of this issue, because I've always been a civil rights advocate. You know, this doesn't make me Tucker Carlson. You're freaking nuts. This is insane. As the black bodies drop like flies around us by violent white hand, he says, there are, there's racist problems in this country, but this is hyperbole, and this is making people crazy, end quote. And that's when something really amazing happened, and that is Mars audience applauded. Now remember, over the years, Mars audiences have always been trained SEALs reliably clapping at every hard-left, anti-George Bush, anti-Trump, pro-Obama statement the host utters. But this time he said the BLM rap pushing critical race theory on American society is dangerous insanity. And the audience clapped. So when evil or crazy people, that would be the uh, BLM critical race theory crowd, take the bit in their mouths, there's no stopping the extremes to which they'll go. Perhaps the reaction from Mars audience is telling us that the American people are finally ready to rein them all in. After all, a leftist audience realized, as Kelly and Marr did, that the left's anti-white racism is going to destroy America. I'll have a link to this article. This is uh, from, I believe this is uh, from AmericanThinker.com. I'll put it in the show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Check it out for yourself. There's actually a clip of, him, of uh, Megyn Kelly on, the, on Bill Maher's show. So when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about how one of the biggest risks that our kids face is this indoctrination in school into so-called woke culture. And it's not just limited to state-run schools. Even private schools are getting in on this. They want, to, they want a virtue signal, too. I have a marvelous article from Kerry McDonald that explains how today's woke classrooms are further proof about why parents should be free to choose on schools. I don't know. COVID pushed a lot of parents into, into homeschooling, you know, maybe reluctantly, but uh, there they are. They're starting to do the homeschooling for themselves. Maybe this is one of those issues that... Uh, will necessitate a rescue of your child's mind before it can be irreparably damaged. We'll cover that just the other side of the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also by Monticello College, Rio del Sion Home Lots. Hey, two new sponsors I would like to add. These are network sponsors, HSL Ammo and also Pure Light. Actually going to be talking with uh, Roger Young of Pure Light uh, coming up a little bit later on this week. But uh, thank you, thank you so much to each of these sponsors. Links are provided in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com that can connect you to each of these sponsors if you need their product or you need their services. Or if you would just like to tell them, hey, thank you for your generosity and for helping to make this program possible. So I'm tackling this. This is a pretty controversial subject today, and I realize that it's it's very possible I'm landing on some toes. I I try to step 
carefully and deliberately when I talk about these kind of things because my goal isn't to get you more riled up or angry or more sure of who or what you should be against. This is a significant threat to not just uh, school kids, but I think to the peace and safety and peace of mind of, of most average Americans. And I'm talking about woke culture. Kids are pretty easy to indoctrinate into this. And, you, you know, if you want to see where the generation gap really exists, oftentimes you can see it in how um, our kids perceive, you know, social justice issues versus, you know, how we perceive them. It's, it's amazing, but uh, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, and, and we both marveled at the idea that um, how quickly we become the old man standing on the lawn, shaking our fist and yelling at clouds, you know, in, in the minds of our kids. Well, Carrie McDonald, one of my favorite education writers and uh, one of the, the key writers for the uh, Foundation for Economic Education, has an article titled, Woke Classrooms Show Why U.S. Parents Should Be Free to Choose on Schools. Her point being that families that value liberalism, and we're talking classical liberalism, over critical theory, should be free to choose different educational options. She says, Illinois legislators last week voted in favor of enacting new culturally responsive teaching and leading standards. Sorry, I just had to look and see what the uh, acronym was. It doesn't, <clears throat> does, <clears throat> does not make a whole lot of sense there, but uh, usually there's, there's some catchy acronym. C-R-T-L-S. Okay. Nothing, nothing there. Moving on. Starting in October, all Illinois teacher training programs must start to reflect the new standards that focus on, quote, systems of oppression, end quote, with teacher trainees required to understand that there are systems in our society that create and reinforce inequities, thereby creating oppressive conditions. Now, under the new standards, all teachers in training are also expected to explore their own intersecting identities. Recognize how their identity affects their perspectives and beliefs, emphasize and connect with students about their identities, and become aware of the effects of power and privilege and the need for social advocacy and social action to better empower diverse students and communities. Even the Chicago, Chicago Tribune editorial board warned against the passage of these standards in the days preceding the legislative session, noting that while rule writers removed the politically charged word progressive, from their proposal, there's no doubt that these are politically progressive concepts as we know them in our current national dialogue. If the rules were tilting toward more traditional concepts of teaching, if the word conservative were peppered throughout the rules, you can imagine the uproar, end quote. So the Chicago Tribune editors also acknowledge the real concerns critics have expressed toward these standards. Quote, teachers could be evaluated on how sensitively they meet students' needs, how engaged they become in political causes, rather than how much their students understand basic reading, writing, and critical thinking, must have skills to prepare any student for life. This is what the editorial board wrote on February 15th. Two days later, a legislative committee approved the new standards. Now, Carrie McDonald says the Illinois action is one example of an accelerating trend toward introducing and elevating critical theory ideology throughout U.S. institutions, including government schools. As Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay write in their book, Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody, they say a critical theory is chiefly concerned with revealing hidden biases and under-examined assumptions, usually by pointing out what have been termed problematics, which are ways in which society and the systems that it operates upon are going wrong. 
Carrie says Pluckrose and Lindsay trace the evolution of critical theory over the past half century, from its emergence in academia to its growing influence in culture and public policy. They argue against its illiberal foundations that prioritize the group over the individual and that often silence free expression and dissent. In the face of this, the authors write, it grows increasingly difficult and even dangerous to argue that people should be treated as individuals or to urge restriction of our shared or urge recognition rather of our shared humanity in the face of divisive and constraining identity politics. She says the emphasis on identity politics rooted in critical theory is increasingly driving education policy, such as the new Illinois teacher standards, as well as the continued push for new high school ethnic studies graduation mandate in California. But it's not just government schools that are affected by these policies. In December, the Dalton School, a pricey New York City private prep school, made headlines when an eight-page manifesto was released demanding more attention to an anti-racist agenda including hiring at least 12 diversity and inclusion staff members, compensating black students who engage in anti-racism activities or have their photos used in school materials, redistributing half of the private donations to Dalton toward New York's public schools, and requiring courses focusing on black liberation and challenges to white supremacy and yearly anti-racist training for not only employees but trustees and parent association volunteers. Holy cow! Nothing to see here, folks. That's a, that is, I mean, it's not just the kids. It's even the parents that need to be indoctrinated. Carrie McDonald says some of the parents of Dalton students removed their children from the school, including one father who told the New York Post, it's completely absurd and a total step backwards. This supposed anti-racist agenda is asking everyone to look at black kids and treat them differently because of the color of their skin. Now, Carrie says the same choice of exit should be open to more families who are disillusioned by what they see happening in their children's schools. The school shutdowns and related remote learning plans implemented over the past year have given parents an unprecedented look at what their children are or are not learning in their schools. Many parents feel a renewed sense of empowerment and have left their district schools for private education options, including independent homeschooling, which has more than doubled during the pandemic response. Other parents may want to leave their school district or their district school, rather, but lack the resources to do so. She says support for education choice policies that expand learning options for families has grown during the school shutdowns. A fall Real Clear Opinion research survey revealed 77% of respondents are in favor of funding students over systems. That's up 67% from last spring. 26 states now have active legislative proposals to expand education choice and allow funding to follow students. Illinois is one of those states with a proposal to create an education savings account program for income-eligible families that enables a portion of per-pupil funding to go directly to families for approved educational expenses. She says the Nobel Prize-winning economist Milton Friedman was an early and enthusiastic advocate of education choice policies. He said if present public expenditures on schooling were made available to parents, regardless of where they send their children, a wide variety of schools would spring up to meet the demand. Parents could express their views about schools directly by withdrawing their children from one school and sending them to another, to a much greater extent than is now possible. By the way, this is from his book, Capitalism and Freedom. So parents may decide to remove their child from an assigned district school for a variety of reasons ranging from academics to student well-being to ideology. 
Kerry says as states like Illinois continue to push their educational institutions toward a more progressive ideology rooted in critical theory, parents who disapprove of this theory should have the choice and the opportunity to exit in favor of other options. She says families that value liberalism over critical theory should be free to choose different educational options and taxpayers who value the same should choose their legislators wisely. I'll have a link to this story in the show notes. Again, this is the marvelous Carrie McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Just a quick shout out to uh, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. If you are a business owner and you have commercial insurance... You already understand that there's a lot of considerations that go into getting your ins- your commercial insurance coverage. So if you have any doubts as to which I needs to be dot, which T must be crossed, this is where you could really use a, a very qualified and well-trained staff of professionals like the folks at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance to help you navigate some of those trickier areas. I mean, you're wearing a lot of hats if you're a business owner to start with. This is one place where you have some help that uh, could be very, very useful. You can reach out to them by going to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Down at the bottom of each day's show notes, you'll find a special section there for my sponsors. Click on Landmark Risk Management and Insurance and uh, let them help you. And tell them thanks for sponsoring the show. You know, we have a lot of ongoing challenges as a society. There's no doubt about it. And I think this is true pretty much any society that you look at. I think it's also safe to say, though, that many of the challenges we're facing right now are actually monsters of our own creation. And I think this is especially true with, with so-called woke society and all the uh, you know attempts to, to point to everything is racist. And by the way, those who are tempted to think that this is just strictly, hey, this is only something that people on the left you know, subscribe to, that's not true. There are actually a lot of folks on the right who subscribe to this as well. They're they're different sides of the same coin in the sense that both want to use the power of the state to force people in a direction of their choosing, using race as as one of the mechanisms to, you know, beat people over the head and get them moving in that direction. I love the column that I saw from Annie Holmquist, who just, this is just so much common sense. She says, the problem is systemic victimhood, not systemic racism. And I'm no scholar, but I have, you know, the last 25 years, I've paid pretty close attention. And I have definitely delved into the origins of cultural Marxism or political correctness as we know it. Marxism itself is based on victimhood, right? Workers of the world, unite. You're being exploited. We've got to rise up against the greedy capitalists and the exploiters, the landlords and the bourgeois that, you know, the bourgeois mentality that has them exploiting you you're a victim so cultural marxism just takes that same victimhood and again uh, class warfare 
That's, that's really what Marxism thrives on. It just translates it into other things like racism. Everything is racist. Everything is sexist. Everything is intersectional. This is, this is where critical theory comes from. This is where intersectionality comes from. The crazy thing is, how did this gain so much acceptance in society? It's not just government that has embraced this. Corporate America is very woke. Anybody who sat through the latest sensitivity training, you know what I'm talking about. And it's been going on for a long time. But I think Annie Holmquist nails it. It's not that there is so much racism everywhere. It's that uh, there are victimhood schemes and people looking to claim victimhood for the purpose of claiming power over other people. Anytime somebody comes at you with weaponized guilt telling you, hey, you have to feel this way because I'm a victim and I get to tell you what to do. Walk away. <laughs> Do not engage. You're not dealing with somebody who can be uh, conversed with rationally, if that's the mindset with which they're approaching life. I'm a victim. Everything has to cater to me. Me, 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 me. Especially when it's being backed by political power. And, of course, politicians love this because look what I'm doing for you. Here's what Annie Holmquist says. She says, I was a sheltered white girl working my way through my teen years when circumstances suddenly threw me into regular contact with minority children and families in inner-city Minneapolis. Although it was a bit of a culture shock and sometimes difficult, she says, I quickly grew to love the time I spent teaching, talking with, and growing to love the kids from a range of racial and socioeconomic backgrounds. She says, I've learned a lot of things over the more than 20 years I've spent with these children and their families, but one thing I've learned is that racism comes in more flavors than simply white against black. It's a little hard to know exactly how to term one version of this, but the best thing I can think of is to call it black-on-black racism. This kind of racism came to my attention in the form of a single mother with several children. She was doing her best to get her life together, raising her children, trying to be upstanding citizens, uh, to, to be upstanding citizens, rather, trying to live her own life in a morally upright way, holding down a job, trying to climb the ladder of success, yet in return for her efforts, her fellow blacks accused her of being white. Now, Annie says, I'm sure those comments hurt her greatly. But this woman disregarded them and pressed on, trying to overcome her difficulties and get ahead in the world. Yet, she says, I've seen others who had similar comments thrown at them give up, preferring to run with the crowd than be ostracized by their own community. She says, I'm not the only person to have noticed this trend. Scholar and author Anthony Esselin highlights a similar scenario in the February issue of Chronicles, writing, it is bad to be a black man, a young black man, reading and enjoying Shakespeare, meeting the sneers of his black classmates who call him white inside. It's worse to be that fellow who could and should be in love with learning, having his heart cut out by the contempt and courting indifference instead of interest and failure instead of triumph. It is worst of all to be those who do this to him, confirming themselves in their own incapacity. End quote. Now she says, Esalen goes on to say, to call this a self-perpetuating and self-destructive falsehood in which blacks encouraged to look upon whites as inveterate enemies begin to dress, talk, and act in antisocial ways. Such behavior keeps racism burning. And that behavior, Esalen says, is pure cruelty. Cruelty it is because because of what it does to those who think they have nothing to offer the world that is finer than their victimhood. One might easily and truthfully respond that blacks were horribly wronged through slavery, but does this give them a reason to wallow in their victimhood? More importantly, does it give blacks justification for pulling their fellow blacks down 
trying to keep them in a life of victimhood and oppression forever. And he says, I don't see how that could possibly be the case. As Esselin writes, quote, Because blacks were enslaved 150 years ago, if your skin is dark now, even if you are not a descendant of those slaves, you get points as a victim, regardless of whether your own poor decisions drag on you like a ball and chain. John Calhoun didn't push the cocaine your way. Jefferson Davis didn't get your girlfriend pregnant. Robert E. Lee didn't tempt you to play video games when you should have been reading books. End quote. It's pretty direct stuff, but I think it's absolutely true. Annie Holmquist says, We live in a time when accusations of racism are blasted in our faces and attempts to correct systemic racism exist at nearly every level of society, from the Biden administration to big tech to higher education. But do these ostensible attempts to correct the wrongs of the past and root out today's racism only exacerbate the problem by teaching people that victimhood is good? And in encouraging the victim mentality, she asks, do we, ins- do we discourage responsibility, growth, and personal success for those trying to break free from a life of victimhood? She concludes by saying, maybe we're focusing on the wrong thing. From what I've seen in the past, perhaps a focus on rooting out systemic victimhood for all races is the first step to stopping the systemic racism that allegedly plagues our society. And I'm thinking it's been close to 25 years ago. I interviewed a guy by the name of Mason Weaver. Um, he's still out there, very, uh, very prominent, conservative, black author and speaker. Uh, marvelous young man. He was a former member of the Black Panthers. He joined them after he got out of the Navy. He had been injured in an accident and been disabled. And he was a very angry young man at that point. Felt that uh, life was being totally unfair to him and that uh, that there was just... That, that it, was, it was somebody's fault that he was a victim. And that's why he joined the Black Panthers. But Mason Weaver has this incredible outlook. And, and it's been, like I say, it's been 25 years since I interviewed him, but I still remember his clarion call was to ask his fellow blacks to please recognize that it's okay to leave the plantation. In other words, the victimhood that many of them have, have been told, you have to cling to this, you have to waddle this, this is your golden ticket, if you will, to get you through life. But his answer was no. What you need to do is get away from the plantation. And what he means is leave the people like Al Sharpton and others who, who sit there and push this, this victimhood mentality and go where the opportunity is. That's, that's pretty bold words, you know, but, but coming from him, he's a lot less likely to get accused. Oh, actually, I take that back. He's accused of being racist as well. You know, right? You've sold out. You're, you're an Uncle Tom. I don't know. Mason Weaver makes a heck of a lot of sense. I really enjoyed the conversation with him, and it was very enlightening to pick up on the idea that there are people who, for better or for worse, have been persuaded that it's in their interest to claim victimhood as opposed to rising above those circumstances. I mean, every one of us in some way, shape, or form has times in our lives where we are not in control of our circumstances or where things are happening to us that we are powerless to stop. Why is it that some people rise above them to heights of personal greatness and others sink to a level where they're trying to drag others down? I wish I had the answer, but... At least, at least we have some people asking the right questions, right? This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I'm going to keep on this theme of victimhood. You know, is is it systemic racism? Is it systemic victimhood? Is it is it time that we really be teaching, you know, critical race theory in the schools? Is that going to fix things? You know, to me the answer is obvious, of course not. This is this is all about imposing a particularly nasty form of collectivism, that being identity politics on the public as opposed to celebrating the worth and value of each individual. But I want to take it one step further, okay? I'm in this far if I've if I've dug myself into a pit, I'm just going to dig myself out now. Um, this is a great article from Anders Koskinen. Humans are better than animals. Now, that would seem to be, you know, self-evident, I think, to most people. Outside of, you know, the ranks of, of some of the really hardcore members of PETA, um, I think you would find most people would say, well, yes, humans are different than animals. You know, an animal will scratch whatever itch it has at the moment. Humans have reason and so forth. Uh, Anders Koskinen says, most readers, upon seeing the title of this article, will think, well, duh, humans are better than animals. However, he says, the New York Times opinion page apparently needs a reminder of this basic fact of metaphysics. As philosophy professor Crispin Sartwell argues that this idea is a good candidate for the originating idea of Western thought and a good candidate for the worst. Anders Koskinen says there's so much wrong with this train of thought that a complete dissection of the editorial isn't possible in this limited space. He says to start with, however, we can examine Sartwell's question. If we truly believed we were so much better than the squirrels, why have we spent thousands of years driving home the point? Well, for one thing, says Anders Koskinen, people like Mr. Startwell keep claiming that humans aren't better than squirrels. Humans alone are beings created of both spiritual and physical realities. When any human rejects the spiritual reality and chooses instead to indulge his every physical desire, it's a cause for sorrow both for God, whom they've rejected, and for the entirety of humanity, who might have benefited from a proper application of the individual's will and intellect. Allowing oneself to be consumed by animalistic urges is not an enlightened virtue or an exercise in freedom. It's a selfish choice that draws its maker further into the slavery of his own impulses. In such a manner, believing that man is no better than animals is practically tautological. Anyone who believes such has no reason to act differently, and they will become more like an animal than those who aspire to higher things. Now, he says, sadly, there are people who would agree with Sartwell's position just to avoid the responsibility of an enlightened life and to focus on the same on the same base animalistic urges. Now, contrary to Sartwell's assertion, animal similarities to humans have not constituted insults, nor are they disconcerting. In the grand scheme of things, the similarities are simply irrelevant because the differences are too great. Squirrels, Sartwell's preferred point of comparison, do not ponder life after death They do not create art or currency, and they do not send scientific instruments to distant planets. Squirrels are only concerned with finding food, avoiding becoming food, and mating. As regards eating, Sartwell claims that the connection of the idea of human superiority over animals to the way we treat animals, for example, in our food chain, is too obvious to need repeating. In this scheme of things, we owe nature nothing. It is to yield us everything. 
Our food chain? Well, what about the Peregrine Falcon's food chain? How cruelly this bird devalues the lives of heaven fulfend the the squirrels it eats. What about the brown bears who feast on salmon as the fish swim upstream to spawn? Do they not realize they owe nature something in return? Anders Koskinen says, Awareness of our ecological impact on the world around us is itself a uniquely human trait. Neither the Burmese python, the emerald ash borer, nor any invasive species care about the ecological havoc they wreck when introduced into an environment unprepared to deal with them. They eat and breed without a thought for the rest of the world. Humans, on the other hand, have a whole day dedicated to planting trees. He says, if humans are not better than animals, then Jonathan Jonathan Swift's modest proposal for solving the problem of Irish poverty should have been taken more seriously. After all, many female praying mantises eat their partner after or during the reproductive act. And scientists have discovered that those who do produce more eggs, plenty more eating to go around as a result. Furthermore, he says, Mr. Sartwell's claim that the idea that humans are superior to animals has been a useful justification for colonialism, slavery, and racism is patently ridiculous. If anything, the opposite has been true. Far more interesting than the similarity that, Hart, that Sartwell identifies between men and squirrels, we poop is the similarity between uh, men and chimpanzees, which is war. Now, this was fascinating. The Gombe Chimpanzee War was a separatist conflict between the Kahama chimpanzees and the Kasakela chimps from whom they had split. This conflict, waged over a period of nearly four and a half years, was recorded by Jane Goodall. The Kasakela chimps killed every male member of the Kahama chimps, and one of the females, and of the females, rather, one was killed, two went missing, the remaining three were beaten and kidnapped by Kasakela males. Now, this is no isolated incident in the animal kingdom either. A 2014 study labeled chimps inherently violent, while lions are well known for conquering a pride of females from rival males and then killing cubs sired by the previously dominant males. War, genocide, cannibalism, sexual violence, tell us again how great it is to be animals. The idea that humans are of greater value and import than animals has led human society to reject these behaviors. Now, that's not to say that tribal preferences do not exist and wars do not happen among humans. But when murders, wars, genocide, and infanticide do occur, a shared belief in human dignity causes most of the world to look upon such actions with horror. But if we are to view ourselves as mere animals, well, the chimps and the lions do it. Why shouldn't man? Anders Koskinen says, the, Koskinen says the answer, of course, is that man is not an animal. And we are called to higher and better things. We're called to respect our fellow man and treat each individual with the inherent dignity of a creature made in the image and likeness of the Creator. If we stop recognizing that inherent dignity, if we fail to achieve our higher calling, it's only then that we will slip into being more animal-like. I don't know why, but that this column just, it hit home. It really hit my heart. That's why I'm sharing it with you. Look, I understand not, to, not everybody within the sound of my voice has, uh, you know, considers themselves a person of, of faith or has a particular religious belief. And it's not my goal to persuade you that, uh, boy, you better get on that right away. I will confess, however, that um, the, the spiritual aspects of life 
to me, have become far more important than simply the, the political and many of the temporal aspects. And a lot of this goes back to uh, my understanding that, um, you know, we are created beings. And I'm, I'm invoking, you know, the Declaration of Independence in this case, you know, as, as uh, one of the, the, one of the uh, methods of expressing that government didn't create us. It's not the ultimate authority, particularly moral authority in our lives, or at least it shouldn't be. I believe with how Thomas Jefferson put it in the Declaration that uh, men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Natural rights is what he's talking about. And to assert that these are God-given rights isn't to uh, you know assert that therefore everybody who isn't in Sunday school is in big trouble You know if I find out about it. No. It's recognition that there is a higher moral authority than the state. And, and wouldn't you say that's a good thing? I mean, I'm not trying to point fingers here, but if you were to, just for instance, look at the most murderous government regimes of even the last century or so, one thing that you would find in common is that they would brook absolutely no moral authority in competition with their own. This is why churches were either co-opted under various regimes or, in many cases, outlawed. Look at what the Soviets did to churches. Look at what Chairman Mao did to churches. They're very, very jealous of that moral authority. And in my opinion, religion is a very necessary competing moral authority to the authority of the state. You know, for all the talk we hear about slavery and how horrible, you know, America is because slavery existed here, you do realize, of course, that the abolition of slavery was an idea that was carried forward not so much from the political chambers. I mean, it was discussed there and debated, but nobody really wanted to move on it. The impetus that moved societies, starting in Europe and then eventually in America, to the abandonment of slavery started at the pulpits of their churches and the recognition that God would never condone us treating his fellow children, you know, our fellow man and his children in that manner. So if you want to see the worth in a person, it doesn't come from what political affiliation they have, the color of their skin, what tribe they identify with. It comes from the fact that they, too, are a creation of God, as you and I are. And working from that mutual position of respect, we can solve an awful lot of problems. We just choose not to for some reason. This is The Brian Hyde Show.